0: Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show that discusses the importance of our ocean through the lenses of science, business, and most importantly, conversation. You can follow us at Blue Earth Pod on Twitter. And today we welcome Mark Patterson, a professor at Northeast University and a professional on the front lines of aquatic biotech. Mark, how are you doing today?
1: Oh, doing great. Great to be here with you, John.
0: Yeah, awesome to have you on. Um, and I want to I want to talk obviously a lot about biotech today. Before we get into all that, though, for anyone that doesn't know who you are, can you just do a brief introduction of um, what aspect of science you're involved with?
1: So I'm a marine scientist and I work at Northeastern University. Um, I have a joint appointment between two different colleges, which is super fun. I'm in the civil and environmental engineering department, and I'm also in marine and environmental sciences. So I get to... uh, hang out with engineers that do really cool things to save the planet, as well as all of the ocean scientists that, you know, I know and love um, my entire career. And my passion is um, exploring the underwater world. And I've been privileged to be able to actually invent new tools to go do that. So I'm an expert in underwater robotics, and I've developed these free swimming robots that have been my obsession, sort of my uh, second group of children that I've been raising. Uh, And then uh, the other thing that I do that's probably the most exciting, fun thing I get to do as a marine scientist is I actually live on the bottom of the ocean in underwater laboratories called underwater habitats. And i spent, I just counted it up the other day, I spent 89 days of my life actually living on the seafloor and going outside every day and, and um, using scuba to put a whole work day in underwater, which is something you really can't do diving out of a
0: boat. Well, we'll get into all that stuff. That sounds great. I guess we'll start where you ended just cause it's, it's the most fresh. How is it living uh, underwater? What's the differences that a regular, you know, person might not, most of us will never get a chance to do that. So kind of explain that, that day to day, I guess.
1: So uh, uh, it's hard to know what's going on in the natural world unless you can be present. And if you use scuba diving, you're limited by something called uh, bottom time. That's Part of that's just because you've got a, a cylinder on, on your back that only lasts maybe about an hour of breathing time off your scuba tank. But the other part is that as you're breathing this compressed air, uh, it, some of it dissolves in your body. The nitrogen in the, in the air that's in the tank actually goes into your tissues. And if you stay too long and come up, you get these bubbles in your body that can lead to very severe health effects or, or even death in an extreme case. So that's why you take a class to become a scuba diver. What's neat about living underwater is that uh, back in the 60s, Jacques Cousteau actually invented this. And he realized that if you put a laboratory, a home, on the bottom of the sea, and you put scientists and engineers inside it, and he named them aquanauts, that if they did not come back to the surface, but instead stayed at the depth at which this house was installed, you wouldn't run into all these problems involving uh, illness that can arise from the bubbles uh, coming out of solution in your body. So, so that was the birth of what's called saturation diving. And now there's actually thousands of people around the planet doing saturation diving, but they're almost all in one place, and that's in the oil fields where they will actually be living in these underwater uh, stations, helping um, oil companies. Uh, put rigs into the bottom of the sea. There's only one special place on Earth right now. Uh, it's off the coast of Florida called Aquarius, where scientists can actually go and live and work and study, in this case, a, a coral reef environment. And that's that's where I did all of my work in those 89 days. I was actually on a coral reef uh, in both Florida and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And It was truly amazing. I mean, I have dreams about living underwater even now. Um, Part of it is you really feel like you're in inner space completely. You look out the window and the fish are looking in at you and you can spend a full work day underwater. Sometimes we would spend 12 hours actually out in the ocean doing our science, which is something that you you just can't do out of a small boat if you're if you're lucky you get maybe one to two hours a day of science done if you're diving from the surface but in an underwater space station you can put in a full work day and, and so um i i took advantage of that uh, we call it the gift of time because you've got so much time to actually get stuff done that it changes your whole perspective you can actually be fully present and watch what the animals are doing. You can set up complex experiments on the seafloor that are maybe connected back to the habitat with cables and wires and sensors. And, and that's what I used Aquarius for was I, I did some of the first uh, experiments looking at um, how corals on this coral reef were responding to environmental conditions, including how fast the water was moving was moving and whether the water was too warm, like we're now having in the World Ocean, which is uh, leading the corals to um, be under stress. And uh, they actually lose uh, an algae that live inside their bodies uh, and they turn white. This is this uh, big problem of coral bleaching, which is becoming more and more frequent as the planet warms up. So, So using underwater space stations, I was able to make some key discoveries about how that process works.
0: Yeah, well, I I was was about to ask that exact question of what kind of work you did under there. But so we, I guess, you know, elephant in the room. I had uh, Fabian Cousteau on last week. We talked about Proteus. And, um, so given your experiences, what's the, what are some, what's some of the science you think we'd be able to do that we can't do now, given something like Proteus existing that long-term, you know, you're able to live underwater for a few months at a time or a year at a time or whatever, what kind of science is not possible now, or is difficult now that you could maybe introduce that would make the average population say, you know, oh, this is worth it.
1: Sure. Um- Proteus, if it's built, and I'm, I'm confident that we'll be able to raise the money to build it, it would, it would be much larger and much more capable than habitats of the past and would allow us to have a presence of human beings down there working with some very sophisticated new technology, including underwater robots that would act as dive companions. Uh, and it would allow us to do uh, measurements and uh, increase the efficiency of what we like to call the workflow. You know, how do you get your work done as a scientist? Uh, everybody's got a, a workflow, whether they're in a laboratory or a, a field ecologist, and it would it would speed that workflow up by a lot. In part, because this underwater space station would actually have very sophisticated instruments inside it. So just to give you an example of what could be done with Proteus, um, let's say you're interested in new drugs uh, that may have been uh, created by um, marine organisms that live on a coral reef. You could go out, you could collect the organism, you could bring it back and actually process the tissues or the compounds and you could actually sequence the DNA of the organism that you just discovered right there on the seafloor. You wouldn't have to wait for weeks or months or even a better part of a year to get the answer because part of the team would be taking days off and these would be highly skilled um, scientists like yourself who uh, would actually help with the workflow. So, so I see um, a space station underwater is allowing us to do really sophisticated workflows that we can't do now. Um, The previous habitats I've used were great, um, but it was more like camping out underwater. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was much more low-tech than high-tech. I was one of the few high-tech users, and it it was, you know, tough to uh, make sure that the computer could even stay on inside the habitat or that the cables uh, connecting the experiments we were running on corals back to the computer inside the habitat, that the cables would have to go out uh, the porch where the aquanauts were coming in and out. It wasn't set up to do high-tech stuff. So Proteus will be a, a complete um, uh, see change and how we do things because it will be designed from the get-go to be a fully functioning high-tech lab with laboratory-grade instruments on the bottom of the scene.
0: That seems like the difference between having like an outpost underwater versus having an entire like laboratory, you know, office underwater. And yes. um, obviously for a scientist, those are huge. That's a huge difference. Yes. So I, I want to get into some of uh, some of your work. And before we get into some of the details about what you do, I'm curious, you have a rare perspective being able to pretty much specifically combine the ideas of engineering and, and, and science. That, that concept of biotech, you kind of exist at, at the cusp of both. Um, and so I, I want to talk about how those two things, tech and science, entwine, because they really can't exist without the other. So what um, what is your take on biotech and that uh, co-reliance they have on each other?
1: Uh, that, that's a great question. I uh, discussed this quite a bit with my colleagues in marine science. Um, it, it's actually quite interesting because uh, if you look at the history of science, there's actually a debate uh, within the science world, and then the historians have weighed in on this. And I'll tell you what my view is, and my view actually um, aligns more with how historians think things work. So you might imagine that to make new discoveries, you study nature, and then you have a brainwave thinking about something uh, sort of like Albert Einstein was thinking about uh, relativity or the photoelectric effect while he was you know, working as a patent clerk. And, and it, it comes out of an aha moment. And, and while we do have aha moments, I actually think science proceeds much more quickly for for most of us who aren't Einsteins by developing new tools, by inventing things to make measurements that we had no way to put a number on something before. So I actually think science progresses most quickly when we make transformative new technology that allows us to measure things that nobody was able to measure before and I contributed a little bit to that by uh, helping develop underwater robots. Uh, these robots are uh, taxi cabs for sensors, so they can carry around all kinds of sensing devices, but uh, they don't get tired. Uh, we can send them out to do uh, you know repetitive, dull work that would be uh, either too dangerous or too dull for a human being to run around and collect the same data. And now that we've got these free-swimming robots, um, we are making discoveries that we didn't know the ocean worked this way before. And you know, I could point to other devices, uh, dozens of dozens of new tools. And the reason the debate comes up is that sometimes people in science, when they see that there's some new technology that's being applied to a problem. It's human nature to try and, you know, use your new hammer to hit every nail that you can, right? And and that sometimes gets viewed uh, negatively by uh, peers and colleagues thinking, oh, you're just using your new toy to go, you know, measure X, Y, or Z. But in my opinion, that's really how science advances, is trying out the new tool in as many different systems and as many different ways as possible to learn the limitations of a new tool, if nothing else, but also to contribute to the body of knowledge about how the world works. So that's why I really like being in an um, engineering department as well as a pure science department, because um, I get to work with engineers who like to solve practical problems and measurement, which is the challenge we have in ocean science.
0: I think uh, to interject like with my, I guess, my two cents for a second, um, I think humankind is really interesting because that's the way that we work. We've always worked homo sapiens is that concept of, aside from a few random, some individual comes up with something crazy, it's thousands of people chipping away at the same thing over time that leads to that gradual wave of technology as opposed to individual pieces. You see, you know, if everything you do is built off of so many people before you and you are one of all the people that will propel us into the future. And it's just a, you know, we kind of come as an entire species at a problem, whether it's supporting something or everyone from the people that design the new iPhone to all the people that buy that iPhone. It's the whole population kind of works together to move forward. We're we're, we're,
1: we're the tool tool making ape, but, what people tend to forget is that it's really the what you just said, John, it's the social aspect. You know, we we're, our power is in numbers and cooperation. Um, anyway, that's what's fun about uh, living in an underwater space station is you get to work on a team, and your team, the whole is greater than the, the sum of the members. Um, so that's that's another great thing about uh, about how I get to do my sciences. I get to work with amazing teams of
0: people. Yeah, and having that larger space station, or sea uh, station, I guess you could call it, having a larger place like that is nice for just having, you know, even if there's, instead of having one or two other people with you at a time, you can have a larger number of people to just bounce your ideas off of. and
1: Bounce your ideas off. Uh, a lot of key insights were actually um, made while sitting around the kitchen table and uh aquarius which is the current and only habitat uh, out there on a coral reef so um i don't know if, if fabian talked at all about the organic design but um there's a uh, amazing designer eves fahar who's based out of new york um but he's an incredible uh designer uh runs the fuse project and has designed you know many consumer things etc but his his feel for this um, space in which we'll find ourselves is uh, got some great insights about how people come together and how people also need their own space. And you, you want you want this environment to be one that's uh, comfortable for longer missions because, you know, we, we have to think about these things. We're going to send people to Mars or even on the ISS. I was reading, reading an article the other day that you know, it's it's. I think it's the most crowded it's ever been right now, and yet they're they're trying to make it as comfortable as possible for the astronauts. And so same thing will apply underwater.
0: Yeah, those designers are really important too, because the people on the science end and on the business end of these projects don't necessarily think about that kind of stuff. Design seems uh, secondary, I think, a lot of the time in science. But you know, the ergonomics of how you're living there, so it does have to have a. a it has to be a good communal space but also since you're so isolated you have to be able to be comfortable because you can't escape it yep. you're working 24 you're working or sleeping or eating you know what i mean you can't really right. you can't go outside you know <laughs> yeah you're if you go outside you're out in the water researching or something so it's important to have it be a place where you don't you know go crazy i guess um and yeah. that's something i think a lot yeah. of people don't i don't think about you know yeah i'm a big uh
1: i'm a big fan of design uh, my partner in the um uh creation of the robot, that uh i stood a business up with him was uh, actually from rochester his name is uh, jim sias and he was a professor at the rochester institute of technology and jim is in my mind uh kind of like steve jobs was he was a- incredible at looking at form and function and uh, one of jim's first products he designed um straight out of uh like one of his first jobs was uh working for Kodak. And back in the day before there were video projectors, when you wanted to give a talk, you used a photographic film in a little square called a slide, the photographic slide. And you had a, a carousel of slides that would drop down and a light would uh, shine the image up onto the screen when you were giving a talk. And Jim designed almost by himself for Kodak uh, one of their best-selling products ever. It's the Kodak custom carousel slide projector. It had all these little uh, things that made it a winning product, like the cord would wind away and be hidden in the base. And it had leveling feet so you could get the image just show. And then there was a door that you could pull the lens back and cover it up so it wouldn't get scratched or dirty. And um, and Jim brought that sensibility uh, on the mechanical side when we we, uh, bonded together to build a new kind of underwater vehicle um, back in the mid '90s. So uh, I, I really have a deep appreciation for what a good designer can do.
0: It matters, especially if it's going to be a commercial product. Like you know, Kodak was an interesting company because they had such a range of you know they were a chemical company, really, and they were they worked for the That's government right. on such big projects, but then also there was a huge public-facing aspect of that company. I'm shocked we're talking about Kodak right now. I didn't think <laughs> I'd be doing that uh, at ever. So, um, so yeah. But um, getting into some of your work, you've talked a lot about your, uh, your underwater robots, um, AUVs and things. Uh, so if you could explain how they work and what they are and um, I guess how they've developed over the last couple decades you've been working on them.
1: Yeah, sure. I, uh, Jim and I were actually, um, we think we may have been the first people to stand up a small business to make small free swimming robots. When I say small, uh, the robots we, we made, uh, they're called fetches. Uh, the idea was like a good dog, you would throw it in the ocean and say, hey, go get some data, Fido, and it would <laughs> fetch data and bring it back. Uh, the idea was that This robot would come home, you hoped, because you'd spent so much money and time making it. (laughs) Hope so. It's kind of scary, you know, when you release something that can uh, swim away and never be seen again. So Fetch was born in the kitchen table, uh, actually in Rochester, and then later moved to Virginia. And we realized that that this is back in the mid-90s, that a whole bunch of technologies had suddenly matured almost overnight, that we could put together, just as two people, a free swimming robot mm-hmm. without being, like, degreed roboticists with a multi-million dollar left. Mm-hmm. We, we literally did it on the kitchen table with our credit cards. Uh, the things that had happened back then were personal computers had suddenly become overnight super powerful. So we used uh, one of the first Apple Power PCs as the brains of the robot. Because the Power PC was essentially, by uh, the standards of two decades ago, a supercomputer. In fact, n- you couldn't even take the Apple products out of the United States because they were worried about uh, our uh, adversaries uh, networking a whole bunch of apples together to design a nuclear weapon. They were that powerful. Mm-hmm. So we used uh, a Power PC as the the brains. Uh, GPS was now transitioning out of military labs into being a consumer product. Uh, we were able to put a GPS in the robot, uh, radio modems so that we could transmit data at the, while we were at the surface over a radio wave in sort of the same way that you now get your text messages, your emails over your smartphone. That was now becoming a thing. So we put all these uh, things together and uh, about eighteen months later, the robot swam for the first time in just Chesa- in the Chesapeake Bay, and um, our family said, "You know, you guys have spent an awful lot of uh, personal money on this. Are we ever going to see any of that back?" <laughs> <laughs> so that's what led to the creation of uh, a company that ran for a decade called Sias Patterson after our two last names, and we started getting inquiries from, uh, as you might imagine, oil companies who wanted to use these robots to go looking for oil, as well as the Department of Defense, because they realized that free-swimming robots were gonna transform uh, how you might gather intelligence about the ocean or what an adversary was up to. And then of course, marine scientists were totally excited about the possibility of having a a free-swimming sensor, a, a taxi cab for not just one sensor, but for a whole bunch of sensors at the same time. And so it was an exciting uh, run we we were in business for 10 years and we sold um uh, a handful of robots each of these robots cost hundreds of thousands of dollars that's what that's what the nail-biting was about worrying about whether it was going to come back at the end of the day sure but well that sounds like a lot of money um it's actually quite expensive to go out in the ocean to measure what the ocean's doing um if you need a big oceanographic research vessel, you might be looking at $50,000 a day to go to sea. So if your robot only costs a couple hundred thousand dollars and you can replace having to go to sea for just a few days with a ship, then that's a good deal. And um, So I started using the robots in my own research and then others became interested and a couple other companies came on the scene uh, a year or two after we started, so that's when um, marine robotics sort of uh, started taking off. And it's, it's just continuing to expand into uh, many hundreds of millions to approaching a billion dollars market value for using these tools to explore the ocean.
0: Yeah, I mean it seems like it's uh it's one of those revolutionary like we talked about earlier, one of those revolutionary concepts that isn't possible and then as all these other little things yeah. become possible. And all of a sudden, yeah, then you can do it. Yeah. Um and so what have been its uses in the in recent memory? What kind of stuff do you study and gather most? What um you know, breakthroughs have, you know, marine robotics been on the front line of?
1: I can tell you a few things I've done and then um and then others have uh, used different kinds of vehicles to make some incredible discoveries as well. So, so my robots are about the size of a person and they weigh about the same. So I can imagine six feet long, 200 pounds, Mm. and they can go out for uh, a work day, or if you use uh, more expensive batteries and go out for a couple of days. So they can stay at sea quite a while. And during that time, they're they're what I like to call walking speed robots because they swim about or Michael Phelps robots they swim at about <laughs> the same speed that Michael Phelps swims okay which is you know a body length a second um, but if you're swimming for 24 hours you can cover uh, you know 100 miles or more and they because they can uh, be out there and continuously swimming. What they do is they get data that allows us to overcome a challenge that we've had since the 1870s, when the Challenger expedition that the British government launched to try and understand the ocean took place. So, Challenger was uh, HMS Challenger was a warship retrofitted as a uh, science lab. It was the first time anybody ever done that, and they actually had people on board from all different fields, like chemistry and physics and geology and biology they all had to work in a common laboratory on this warship and they went around the planet um, over a year and a half and they produced 50 volumes of data about the ocean that are still referred to to this day but one of the things that happened was uh, during the cruise It was so mind-numbingly dull for the sailors on board because they would drive the ship a few miles, stop, lower things over the side, make a measurement, take hours to pull them back up, move the ship another few tens of miles. And so we got these point measurements all over. They were incredibly tedious. The crew actually tried to desert at every port. About a third of the crew would try and run away. That's how bad it was for these British sailors. And you only got these dots, if you look at the reports uh, from 140 years ago now, you got these dots sparsely spaced around the whole planet. So that the problem is the ocean changes much faster than we have the ability to observe with a ship. But if you have a whole bunch of robots out there racing around and racing around at walking speeds, you can actually see changes that you might not have known were taking place. And one of those changes we saw, for example, down in Florida around the, actually not far from the Aquarius underwater habitat, was that the water quality over the coral reef was changing dramatically over very short distances. And so the robot was carrying a sensor for um, oxygen, and oxygen is required for life, and Scientists have thought that coral reefs always had plenty of oxygen on them because they're in shallow water in the tropics with lots of algae. Uh, Even the corals themselves can produce oxygen when conditions are good because they got those plants living inside them. And we discovered that if the reef is degraded, as it can be in places like Florida, where human activity and global warming have really come together and some ways to really harm the reefs, we actually found that you could have low oxygen mass water drifting around over a coral reef. And we would not have discovered that had we been in a a small boat out there just putting our uh, sensor over the side like they did back in the day of the Challenger, we would have said, oh, the oxygen's fine here. And then we'd move the boat, make another reading. no, it's fine there too. It's because the robot was undulating up and down through the water like a fish, going all the way down to the bottom, coming back up, and then doing these uh, what we call mowing the lawn, where you um, go back and forth in this rectangular pattern. We suddenly found that uh, water quality was not what we thought it was in the water in the Florida Keys. Um, Uh, I mentioned earlier, though, that we view this as a taxi cab, so at the same time that we're looking at, okay, what's the oxygen doing in the water, we can be doing other things. We can measure and count how many fish are there using a special kind of sonar called uh, side-scan sonar. It's a a sonar that uses very high sound frequencies. It's very similar to what um, you uh, used to image a baby in the womb ultrasound. Um, so you can actually get images of fish at the scale of football fields by, uh, essentially taking a picture the same way that a doctor would look at a baby in the womb. In this case, the womb is the ocean and the baby are the fishes,
0: um, same kind of thing. Yeah. So <laughs>
1: it's, yeah, it's, it's similar tech, In fact, that technology was borrowed from the medical industry and got turned into uh, a whole new technology that robots can carry. So I used my uh, robot to image fish over coral reefs and look at where they hang out. And I also used it uh, in the Chesapeake Bay to do uh, similar things. And at the time, I had a student who was very interested in this thing called AI, artificial intelligence. And neural networks, which you hear about all the time in the news. And he said, "Could we use a neural network to have the robot identify what it's actually seeing from these images that we're getting using acoustics? And I said, that's a great idea. Why don't you do that for your master's thesis? So he did, and we actually got a patent. We actually have, to my knowledge, the first patent on using AI to determine what you're seeing underwater from these uh, high-frequency sonar images. And and the nice thing is that the, getting back to when I was talking earlier about how powerful the computers are that are now running these robots around, and that the idea of a workflow, you actually have the robot figuring out and identifying what it's seeing in real time underwater and it can actually make decisions on what it just saw so that you can have what we call um, event-driven sampling. So if it sees, oh, there was a big fish over there, I wonder why those, or there's a school of fish over there, I wonder why they're all there, the robot could suddenly alter its mission plan and go hang out with the school and see what the environmental conditions are like. So those are just a couple examples of stuff I've done with with my robots. And, um
0: super interesting i even feel like once when you get into the ai stuff if you can get them communicating with each other if you have let's say that you get to a point where there's a bunch of those machines in the ocean and you have them communicating with each other you can make that it's one of those things that will continue to automate itself more and more you you're
1: exactly thinking the way the department of defense is so swarms are now (laughs) a thing and i have like five robots in my lab so i have ambitions of uh, trying to have my own swarm uh, the biggest swarm i've had so far has only been two vehicles reacting to each other
0: mm-hmm.
1: but i want to get to five um swarms in uh robots that fly through the air are now uh actually quite mature technology uh, maybe you saw the um wasn't the Olympics, it was at the inauguration, but I know they're going to do similar similar things at the uh, Olympics in Japan. Um, At the recent presidential inauguration, there were Mm -hmm. these drones making all these patterns in the sky that were all spaced out with light. Yeah. Yeah, so you can imagine underwater that if you had multiple robots... Investigating a coral reef, that it would make sense, and and we hope to do this at Proteus once it's built, is to have the swarm investigate what's going on in the reef in a way that would that, that is not doable right now, um but with people in the loop, so the people will get to see what yes. the robots are thinking and doing, and then they can say, "Hey, robots, you kind of missed the the drill. You, the swarm should go there next time." We, Because that's more interesting to us as the experts who are looking at your data.
0: So I'm sure that you were just waiting on your hands for um, self-charging or extreme life batteries. Uh, (laughs) That would change the whole game, I'm sure, for you, right?
1: Yes. So so these robots are battery limited. Every robot that has to carry its own power source is battery limited, um, unless it's got its own little nuclear
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Reactor on board. Uh,
0: One day, maybe. <laughs> someday.
1: I actually did work on a design with a defense contractor for a robot that could cross the entire ocean uh crawling on the seafloor that would have a small uh thermal um nuclear electricity generator like these use on the spacecraft on board. But to One my day. knowledge, that vehicle <laughs> never been built. Um, although I wouldn't be surprised if some, if it's being built under some class,
0: yeah. DOD has one. You just don't know about it, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah,
1: so so there are robots now, and this is a new frontier. In addition to swarms, it's having the robots try and harvest energy from the ocean so that they can stay out even longer. So you can imagine some robots, if they came to the surface and had solar cells on their back, they could just bask in the sun like a sea turtle. Uh, when their batteries are low and and Mm -hmm. recharge them and then go back to work. Um, Waves going up and down right at the surface um, can generate a lot of energy. So there are technologies to actually capture uh, that up-down motion when it's wavy enough to, again, charge a battery.
0: Uh, That's what but, I was thinking. <laughs> if you could use somehow use the current to, you know, create energy that way. Yeah. But uh, that kind of stuff is nice. It's just not consistent. So you'd have to have a very yeah, so intelligent you machine, have have a, you know, you always have to have a backup. You're right. So
1: one other exciting thing though, and, and again, the Navy has funded a lot of this work um, is some robots actually can find an underwater docking station and they'll pull into this little garage and they'll get charged up using uh, the same sort of inductive uh, connectors that they use, like for um, uh, electric cars. Mm-hmm. And the power source will be, you know, something else like a cable coming all the way ashore from the electric power grid. But now that the U.S. is finally, finally investing in renewables and we're starting to plan for big wind farms being mm-hmm. offshore, you can now imagine that we're going to be able to find power sources at sea more easily. Yeah, and you could imagine that there would be fleets of robots uh, measuring the health of the environment or monitoring fishery stocks that might be based out of wind farm fields, where they would be able to go and recharge, and and that way they might never have to come come home. Yeah, back home, except for the maintenance. Home, or, maintenance.
0: Yeah. That's That sounds great. I, and I feel like a lot of what you do feels very similar to what Proteus wants to do, where there's that initial human understanding of, you know, if you want to learn more about the ocean, you, you know, jump off a ship and measure it for a few hours. You drop a line in the water. But that's right. not very honest because that's not the way that, you know, we visit the ocean, but that's not how the ocean works. That's and right. so if you can, you know, have a place that you live under there just like how the fish live under there, or you create a machine that instead of dropping a pole in the water like a human thinks, you think like a fish and you create a robot that acts like a fish. Uh, it becomes can- more honest. You're living
1: there. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah, so you're more present and more honest. He couldn't have put it any better, John,
0: It was spot on <laughs> what we're <was laughs> trying to do. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, I think it's really interesting work and important work, and it's how science should be behaving on all fronts, um, yes. thinking from the the perspective of what you're studying. Um, and so I'm curious, too, we talked a bit about this, but if there's any other concepts for the future of like AUV and these underwater robots of, you know, as things change and we learn more, are there, is there different design patterns you're trying to form or is there anything on the horizon in terms of how they'll work in the future you want to talk about? Well, I'm
1: uh, before I got into robotics, um, and I still do some of this research on the side, I was very much into studying how marine organisms behave as engineering devices. So it's called biomechanics or bioengineering or physical biology are some of the names this field goes by. So it's it's the people that study uh, the hydrodynamics of how fishes actually swim Uh, because fishes are incredibly maneuverable. Same thing for marine mammals. Um, For my thesis work back in the day when I was getting my PhD, that was actually the first time I lived underwater. Mm. And one of the experiments I did from that uh, habitat called Hydrolab, this was back in um, the U.S. Virgin Islands, was where Hydrolab is located, was I was really interested in how corals were able to Uh, exchange nutrients uh, from the seawater with their bodies. And it turns out that right near the surface of the coral, there's this um, fluid mechanical phenomenon called a boundary layer. And that understanding how thick or thin that uh, slower moving layer of water was around the coral was really key to understanding everything about its physiology. And that's the domain that uh, engineers work in for a whole bunch of processes, including uh, things like making beer, for example, and a big fermenter is is you've got to understand the fluid mechanics at these surfaces where things are happening. Um, So uh, getting back to where I think uh, the future might be for robots, I think we need to borrow more tricks from nature to make our robots more fish-like. Uh, in some cases, or more turtle-like in other cases, or more worm-like. So there is a whole uh, field of robotics called uh, biomimetic robots, uh, mimetic like mimicking something. And there are now robots that are made out of uh, polymers that contract when you uh, put an electric current through them. And they can swim like little jellyfish, for example. So you could imagine in the future that there will be robots out there that if you were scuba diving and you saw one swim by, you might think, oh, that's a funny looking fish. And then you might take a second look and realize, oh, human beings made this.
0: <laughs> I think it's... Um... Funny how much work and time and money and energy we put into replicating nature, which happens obviously so naturally. And uh I, I agree where I think that, you know, biotech, but like true biotech, like bioorganic tech is so interesting to me and it has been for my whole life, that concept of instead of using machinery to really mimic, the more we can get into um, I guess, you know almost natural materials and we're getting there with being able to, we're starting to do stuff like obviously in medicine, growing organs and stuff like that. But if we can start in some ways marrying that to tech, I think it'll be a lot more efficient uh, in the long run.
1: Part of the reason I came to Northeastern uh, seven going on eight years ago now is to work with uh, uh, another genius named Joseph Ayers. who's a roboticist, but Joe is actually a neurobiologist who studied the American Lobster for most of his career, all of his career, really. And Joe uh, essentially has um, mapped out all the neurons, uh, the nerve cells in a lobster that allow it to crawl around the ocean bottom and explore its environment. And Joe's made a new kind of robot that we have at Northeastern that doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet, which is super exciting for me. It's a It's a very different approach to robotics. Uh, My robot's a conventional robot in the sense that it it has uh, uh, what's called a state machine, which is a, a form of programming where you come up with all the states that you want the robot to be in, including ones that may be screwed up states like being stuck. And then you write code to handle it and there's a whole bunch of you know if then this happens then do this it's very procedural and all all the robots on earth work the same way uh they're they're using procedural processes um joe had a brainwave that i wonder if i can make a robot that had a nervous system like a real animal does and i wonder if i could make enough neurons artificial neurons to together that encode the instinctual, reflexive behaviors that a lobster has. And so he actually made something called robo-lobster. He had uh, several million dollars of Department of Defense funding to do this. And his robots are so cool. So when you see a robo-lobster it's got these uh, artificial muscles made out of a, a wire that contracts when electric current goes through it. And then it's it's got the exact same neurons that a real lobster does, except they're all done with electronics. Mm-hmm. And when you turn on RoboLobster, it stands up and it starts crawling around and it starts exploring its environment and it can squeeze through crevices and there's no programming. That's beautiful. Wow, it's beautiful. It's 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 called. He calls it biological intelligence as yeah. opposed to artificial intelligence, which is what every other robot on the planet uses. So, I actually think goes to something that AI is going to not AI, BI is eventually going to catch on and be the wave of the future for robots. That's
0: yeah, that's. I feel like the. If you know if you're combining those concepts one day will be very interesting. Yeah, so BI, AI robot would be uh very, very capable. BI feels like how animals work and the AI is trying to mimic somewhat how human functioning works. So if you can put them together, then you're gonna have a person. <laughs> Um, which horrifies me. I don't like it, but no, it's we're not going to have consciousness.
1: Machines, I, I don't uh, know if it's possible. A long, long time. Well, I it's one of those
0: things too, fun. where I feel like there's a good chance that if someone ends up developing that one day, they'll uh, take a hammer to it pretty quickly. Maybe not, but, um, that's that concept of science. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good
1: premise of uh, all our good sci-fi movies.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. Um, or the you know the world regretting that someone didn't. I think that's the hard thing with science is that, and, and it's not a bad thing, but science is meant to keep moving forward. It's just like how business works, where it's as long as we have a reason to keep learning, we're going to. And uh, I do think the idea of ethics in science or ethics in business uh, or tech is really important as well to the idea of where should we stop or what should we decide as a as a a humanity what we do because as much as you you know science is awesome but at the same time you can't ever go back from it i talk about mobile phones like i think we should have probably stopped before the smartphone because i think it's all of it's beautiful but it's that question of is it smart to have a computer at our fingertips all the time yeah and i think that's a question no one asked and now you look back and you say a lot of people say you know there's yeah. yeah, a lot of adults that say oh when i was a kid it was a lot better without cell phones but they're just as addicted as anyone else and so it's that question of should we that i think everyone learns needs to learn to ask more um <laughs> 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 but that's, uh, yeah, that's great stuff. Well, I, I want to ask, you know, if there's anything else you want to talk about, um, today before we go, we've covered a lot of really interesting ground.
1: Um, I teach oceanography at Northeastern, uh, and we just wrapped up the, the class, um, two weeks ago and, um, my students, you know, are, uh, the ones in oceanography are very passionate about the planet and super interested in the ocean and it's very difficult being a um marine scientist in this day and age because the news is just so grim about how fast the planet is changing because of our activities Mm -hmm. we've discovered that people tend to to tune out from all the bad news just because it seems like um a single person can't do anything and yet, uh, I didn't start out, you know, in my career uh, intending.